Protests broke out in cities across the country this weekend, sparked by the death of George Floyd. He can't breathe! He can't breathe! In Minneapolis, New York, Atlanta, L.A., Chicago, and across the country, protesters chanted, marched, took a knee, stopped traffic, and confronted police. What do you care about? You don't care about your life? You don't care about our life? You don't care about mine? Come on, man. Some of the protests turned violent. People set fires and threw rocks at officers. Police pushed protesters to the ground and shot rubber bullets and tear gas into crowds. These scenes aren't new. Similar protests have happened after the deaths of Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, and so many others. And in the wake of those protests, police departments across the country promised reforms. The Minneapolis Police Department was one of them. But the deaths continued. And this weekend, Minnesotans took to the streets yet again. Many said they were tired. Tired, you guys. But every single day we get killed, and the message is the same, you all. We get tired, we come out, we show up, then a couple of weeks go by, we forget that it ever happened, and we're just back to that regular endless cycle until another person dies, and we have to show up again and do it all over again. When are you going to get tired, America? Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Monday, June 1st. Coming up on the show, how the Minneapolis Police Department tried to change and why it still wasn't enough. This episode is brought to you by AARP. They have reskilling courses and career tools to help your income live as long as you do. The younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Several of the incidents that have sparked nationwide protests these last few years have taken place around the city of Minneapolis. Our colleague Dan Frosch has been reporting on the Minneapolis Police Department. You had the shooting of Jamar Clark, who died in 2015. Tonight, outrage over a deadly police shooting in Minneapolis. Jamar Clark accused of assaulting his girlfriend, interfering with paramedics. Shot, struggling with officers Sunday, dying last night. Dozens of protesters arrested. Witnesses claim he was in handcuffs at the time of the shooting. Both officers in that case were cleared of any wrongdoing. There were no charges pressed by the county attorney. And that was followed by the shooting death of Philando Castile. Police officer pulled Castile over for a traffic stop. And according to Castile's girlfriend, the officer shot and killed while Castile was telling the officer that he had a legally permitted gun. The encounter was filmed live on Facebook by his girlfriend. The third high-profile shooting in what really was sort of a triumvirate of shootings in close proximity to each other involved a white woman, a woman who was originally from Australia, uh, Justine Damond, who had actually called the police for help. Damon had called 911 to report a possible sexual assault near her home. As she approached the police vehicle wearing her pajamas, Officer Mohammed Noor, who was still sitting in the passenger seat of the patrol car, reached across and shot and killed Damon through the driver's side window. He reportedly was startled by a loud noise. He was convicted of third-degree murder and, and is currently serving a prison term. 
In the wake of that last death of Justine DeMond, the Minneapolis police chief resigned, and she was replaced by someone who activists hoped would be an ally, Chief Madera Arredondo. When Mayor Fry appointed me as chief of the Minneapolis Police Department, I was very steadfast and strong on what our department vision, values, and our culture change would be moving forward. And one of those pillars is sanctity of life. Chief Arredondo is a well-known figure in the Minneapolis Police Department. He's a quiet, reserved, soft-spoken guy. Uh, He's the first uh, black police chief of the city. He's also Mexican-American as well. He's half black and half Latino. He had risen his way through the department and recognized some of the systemic racism, systemic discrimination issues that had plagued the department. In fact, at one point when he was a lieutenant, he filed a lawsuit against the department along with several other officers. He alleged that the department was passing over black policemen for promotion and that they were often much more quickly demoting them, actually. And he also, in this lawsuit, alleged that there were instances of outright racism and discrimination, including a letter that was sent through inter-office mail to all black police officers in the department that was signed KKK. The point being, Arredondo was not just some by-the-book company guy. When he was appointed police chief in 2017, in response to the protests over police violence, Arredondo made some big changes. He required officers to turn on body cameras at the beginning of calls. Uh, He also ended low-level marijuana enforcement, particularly sting operations that targeted mostly people of color and was seen as sort of another potentially damaging way that that law enforcement were interacting with, with police. And then he also made use of force data public. For the first time, residents could go online and see just who had been subject to use of force in Minneapolis their race, their gender, and the kind of force that was used. That's not necessarily normal at, at a lot of police departments. Use of force data is something that, that you, you're seeing more departments make public over the years, but it's certainly a, a more recent phenomena. Minneapolis's mayor also banned an aggressive style of police training called warrior training, which taught officers that threats could be lurking around any corner and didn't emphasize the sort of de-escalation techniques that were becoming more common. And Minneapolis wasn't the only police force making these changes. Post-Ferguson, departments across the country were implementing some of the same reforms that Minneapolis was. It's a very seminal time in law enforcement because you are seeing a class of very progressive big city police chiefs who are outspoken in their push for reform, in their push to improve relationships with minority communities. There has been an embrace of body cameras in particular, an embrace of this de-escalation approach. All of these efforts, I should say, were geared towards reducing, you know, the ultimate encounter, which is, which is an encounter where somebody dies. So what Minneapolis was doing, the reforms that Minneapolis was undergoing, is really mirrored by what cities around the country were doing uh, during the same time period. How did activists feel during the first few years of Chief Arredondo's tenure as he's coming in and he's making these changes? Two things. Number one, I think with Chief Arredondo, they felt they had an ally. They felt they had a seat at the table. They were pleased with some of the changes that were being made. But activists 
particularly folks who had been working on these issues for a long time, knew that one person could not eclipse the weight of decades and decades of mistrust. Still, Chief Arredondo moved quickly to change policies. That was his power as chief. But there were some things about the Minneapolis police that he didn't really control. You can make these changes policy-wise. If a police chief wants to outfit his officers with body cameras, he can do that. If he wants to have the use of force policy rewritten, he can do that. If he wants to mandate de-escalation training, he can do all that. But the problem is the culture of the department, which is really the you know heart and soul of any police force, is something that cannot be changed through policy. And it can't necessarily be changed through training. And that's what Chief Arredondo ran into, and that's what other chiefs run into all across the country. Coming up, how Minneapolis's reform program hit the roadblock of police culture. Welcome back. Police chiefs aren't the only ones with power over a city's police force. Police chiefs have to work with police unions. Those unions can wield immense power over a department's culture and shape how and whether cops are held accountable when they do bad things. And the relationship between a police union and a police chief isn't always a happy one. There's long been a uh, fraught relationship between police unions and police chiefs for the same reasons that unions clash with industry and any profession, contract negotiations, that sort of thing. But the relationship is particularly fraught because of the nature of police work, right? If you think about it, policing is really the only profession where the lowest level employee has tremendous power and can take somebody's life. This is a profession where you have a tremendous amount of discretion and power. You're dealing with a very litigious job in which even the tiniest, smallest encounter can result in a lawsuit or a firing. And so the union recognizes that there is going to be a lot of complaints filed against their officers during the course of their jobs. So the union's point is, look, every time somebody files a complaint against a cop, you can't just capriciously discipline them. There has to be some sort of process where these officers are protected. Otherwise, they just won't be able to do their jobs if they're worried that, oh, this guy, you know, if I slap the cuffs on this guy, there's going to be a complaint filed and I'm going to get fired. Police unions advocate for officers, and their most visible advocate is often the head of that union. In Minneapolis, the head of the police officers union is a white lieutenant named Robert Kroll. I mean, this guy's really out of central casting for a police union, right? He has like the lantern jaw, the handlebar mustache. You know, he's an old school lieutenant and he's been around for a long time, has racked up all sorts of complaints against him, according to public records we found from civilians. He had a history of making sort of incendiary remarks. He referred to the Black Lives Matter group as a terrorist group. And he was also, coincidentally, named in the lawsuit that then-Lieutenant Arredondo filed against the police department. And in in that lawsuit, Arredondo and the other officers involved alleged that the union chief, uh, Lieutenant Kroll, wore a white power patch at one point on a jacket and also referred to then-Congressman Keith Ellison as a terrorist. Mr. Ellison is now the attorney general of the state, and he's both African-American and Muslim. And like other police union bosses, Lieutenant Kroll was not a big fan of the Obama administration. He was a bigger fan of President Trump. He appeared at a Trump rally with a Cops for Trump shirt on, 
embrace the president. The Obama administration and the handcuffing and oppression of police was despicable. The, the first thing President Trump did when he took office was turn that around, put the handcuffs on the criminals instead of us. How do police officers feel about Lieutenant Kroll? He's been elected by the 900 members of the rank and file, so I think you can take that as a sign of support. I think there is some feeling among officers that he puts his foot in his mouth too much sometimes, but he's been elected as union chief for a while, and I think that speaks volumes. Chief Arredondo, by contrast, is a political appointee. And while he was rolling out policy changes to de-escalate officers' interactions with the public and bring transparency to use of force, Lieutenant Kroll was standing up for the department's old culture, a culture that he seemed to think required toughness. And there were warning signs that Minneapolis's policing culture wasn't changing fast enough. There was an incident in 2018 in which some community members walked into a police precinct and saw a Christmas tree that had been decorated with what they felt were demeaning ornaments that were intended to offend the black community. There were empty malt liquor bottles. There were Newport cigarette boxes. These officers clearly saw nothing wrong with doing what they did. They did not try to hide it. They thought it was funny. And the community members said, you know, are you kidding me? We're working on all these issues, and this shows us sort of the true culture of the department that we need to change. And it became a big scandal in the department. The two officers involved were fired. The commander was demoted. Chief Arredondo had to come out and make a statement on this, as did the mayor. But most disturbing was the fact that Minneapolis's reforms didn't seem to be changing the city's outcomes. Under Chief Arredondo, police shootings and use of force in Minneapolis did edge down. But when police did use force on someone, there was still a 60% chance the person was black. And this is in a city where black people make up only 19% of the population. And then there were the complaints. Since 2012, citizens filed more than 2,600 complaints against the Minneapolis police. Of those 2,600, just 12 resulted in any kind of discipline. The worst punishment was a 40-hour suspension. The numbers speak for themselves. I mean, that's it's somewhat remarkable. Now, now, it may be that some of these complaints were indeed frivolous, but still, the disparity is so great that those numbers have been a source of frustration among community members who feel, you know, one of the main beefs they continue to have with the police department, not only in Minneapolis, but around the country, is that officers just are not held accountable for their actions. That has been a major complaint of protesters in the death of George Floyd, The officer who pinned Floyd to the ground with his knee had 18 complaints on his official record. Just two resulted in any form of discipline. 18 is a high number of complaints. So there's a sense of, all right, why was this guy on the street still if he had this many complaints? Was he ever given any de-escalation training? What was the sort of discipline that he was given? We simply don't know the answer to some of these questions because a lot of this is kept internal. So... There is this sense that when an officer does have some issues, they are obscured from the public and the officer is is allowed to keep working. Why are these officers allowed to keep working? Why is it so hard to fire them? It's a constant source of frustration for community members because there's a labyrinthine disciplinary process, which oftentimes has been created and negotiated by unions in the city 
during contract negotiations because the unions don't want a situation where their guys can get fired very easily when every time there's a complaint. So there are numerous boards that have to meet and discuss a case and hearings and different levels of bureaucracy before a decision is made and before the chief is really sort of allowed to do anything. And that creates a process where it is difficult to discipline officers and get rid of them if they're already in the door. For example, there was a tremendous amount of controversy over the main officer involved in the Eric Garner incident, where he was sort of put on modified desk duty for, I think, like several years before he was finally um, fired. So even though the mayor had wanted his firing, he was kept on the force for several years. So there are serious protections that are in that contract that allow uh, officers to hang around for a long period of time before they can be terminated. This slow system is something more police chiefs are beginning to acknowledge. The superintendent of the Chicago Police Department, he said, you know, we we arrest guys, we even do perp walks sometimes, but when it comes to one of our own, we, you know, I think he said we hem and haw, we pull our thumbs, we make sure there's a thorough case against the officer, even though evidence may be staring us in the face, before we do anything about it. Minneapolis and a lot of police departments around the country have tried reforms. Obviously, these reforms didn't stop George Floyd from being killed. But is there data nationwide that shows that these reforms are having an impact? Sadly, no. (laughs) I mean, that's what's sort of perplexing about this. We've seen police shootings since Ferguson sort of hover around 1,000 every year, and that hasn't really changed. What does that tell you, then? Like, if there have been movements to reform things, and yet these these sorts of things still happen. And especially in Minneapolis, which was so visibly attempting to change. What does it say about the prospects that there are for real reform going forward? Well, I think we have to look at it in terms of time, right? These reforms have only been enacted or attempted to be enacted over the last few years. And behind those reforms, you have decades and decades of a way of doing things and an attitude, and a culture. And you can't stop the train and just turn it around. It's going to take a cultural shift in law enforcement, which we're starting to see, and is going to have to continue. And it's going to take time. And during that time period, we're going to see more of these incidents. For protesters, though, it seems like the intensity that we're seeing now and what we're hearing from them is time's up. I mean, this is not something that comes as a surprise to anybody. It's a cycle that repeats itself over and over again. Mm -hmm. People are tired. People are tired of it. There have been years and years and years of this. I think it's just been too much for folks at this point that they're, you know, a feeling that nothing is going to change, a feeling that nobody's going to be held accountable. And that makes people really angry after a while. And we're going to see more unrest because even when you have a reformed in mind administration, a reformer mayor, a reformer police chief who's committed to change, that doesn't erase what has come before them. And it also doesn't necessarily eliminate some of the, you know, intractable issues, the cultural issues, the accountability issues that have not yet been changed. That's all for today, Monday, June 1st. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting for the story by Douglas Belkin, Zusha Ellenson, and Aaron Aylworth. 
This episode featured audio from Lissa Sparrow from Storyful. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.